great to gather together to worship God. Uh, special welcome to my mom and uh, Chris joining us online, my sister. And my name is Chuck Oltman. I'm a pastor here at Christ Bible Church, and it's my privilege this morning to lead us in the study of God's Word. We have a lot of ground to cover, so uh, we're just going to jump right in here. We are in Act 4 of a six-act drama, starting with the creation and then rebellion in the garden and then redemption promise beginning in Genesis 3.15 which runs through the whole Old Testament to Malachi, and now redemption delivered in the, in the Gospels. And that's where we are in the story. I was so moved last week when Randy had a map up that uh, I was compelled to use that same map. So uh, if we could, just briefly here, we'll take a look at this to see where we are in the story. So uh, last week, uh, Jesus fed 5,000 right around Golan Heights, kind of, and if you see where Bethsaida is, a little south and mostly west back up in the hills somewhere, uh, what's now the Golan Heights. That's probably somewhere around there was where the uh, 5,000 were fed. And then uh, uh, the, he, Jesus sent disciples across the lake from the east side back to the west side towards Capernaum, which is at the top of the map there. And then they had a storm and they got blown probably south and they ended up in the place that uh, John 6:21 says was at the land uh, to which they were going, which really isn't all that helpful. Uh, but we'll come back to this map in a second as we sort of lay out the, the plan ahead here. But that's where we are. Uh, where we, when we are in Jesus' ministry, this is, uh, he's about to approach the second Passover, so it's year two of his three-year public ministry, about to start uh, the third and final year. And right now, Jesus is at the peak of his popularity. He is, uh, he's been doing miracles, starting with uh, changing the water into wine at Cana, uh, healing the official's son in John 4, engaging with many people, with uh, Nicodemus in John 3, with the woman at the well in John 4, other Samaritans, Pharisees and Jews. And most recently, again, last week, we saw him feeding 5,000 uh, plus uh, women and children and then walking on water. Uh, the result of all this is that they wanted to make him king. Uh, but by the end of this chapter, we'll see the crowds dwindle. We'll see uh, many walk away and the kingmakers uh, start the path to becoming the crossmakers. Um, what happened? How did all this come to pass? Well, uh, all Jesus had to do was to preach uh, a sermon on the bread of life. So as we look at this text this morning, we'll see John um, interacting with four different groups of people. We'll see him with the crowd, and, and then with the Jews, and then with the disciples, and then finally with the twelve. But we'll see that these four groups are actually an ever-narrowing uh, subset of the same folks. Uh, so I decided to use kind of that general organizing principle to help us walk through the remainder of John 6 this morning uh, as we do that. So and because of the length of this passage today, I'll read selectively as we work our way through. So first we'll talk about Jesus and the crowd, which is uh, verses 22 through 27. And then Jesus and the Jews, 28 through 59. And then Jesus and his disciples, uh, 60 through 66. And then finally, uh, Jesus and the 12, uh, 67 through the end of the chapter, uh, verse 71. But before we uh, dive into this group number one, Jesus and the crowd, I wanted to, uh, again, set the setting for this whole discourse, which is really verses 22 through 24 in John 6. So according to the parallel accounts, that uh, we have in Matthew uh, 14 and uh, Mark 6, we see that this place to which they were going was actually 
uh, Gennesaret, which is on the west side over there in the upper left-hand corner of the uh, Sea of Galilee slash Lake of Gennesaret. And so they headed towards uh, Capernaum, got blown south of course. Jesus got in the boat. They ended up in Gennesaret. And those two parallel passages also tell us that he, he spent more time there healing people, doing miracles. So he had gathered this bunch of people. And there were some that were in Tiberias that must have heard about the feeding of the 5,000, went across the lake in their boats, got there. Jesus was already gone, so were the disciples. So they loaded up the people that were there and put them in boats and went back over to the, uh, it says towards Capernaum, but then they ended up uh, engaging with Jesus as well. So uh, what likely happened was they landed in Gennesaret, they did uh, some more miracles, and then it's only 1.8 miles from Gennesaret up to uh, Capernaum. So it's a fairly short walk. So they probably started this discourse walking along the lake with people that Jesus had accumulated from the healings there and the ones who'd fed previously that joined him on the other side of the lake and then this ends up clearly from this passage in the uh, synagogue in Capernaum. So uh, that's kind of where all this takes place. Uh, these are the same people, many of them, who he had just fed. Um, so the, the crowd that we're going to start with here is uh, in verse 24, becomes the they later in verse 24. But somewhere shortly after that, based on the tenor of the conversation that changes from the crowd to clearly a conversation he's having with the Jews. And that, uh, so I, I sort of drew the line there just to help us uh, differentiate between those. In any case, by the time we get to verse 41 in this passage, it's clear uh, that some of this conversation is between Jesus and the Jews. So we'll start here with group one, uh, chapter, uh, verses 22 through 27. We'll just read uh, John 6, uh, 25 through 27 to walk us through that. Uh, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the, your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So, Jesus in verse 26, you know, when they asked him the question, you know, uh, when did you get here? He does what he does frequently. He just kind of ignores the question. He doesn't answer that question, but he jumps in and says, opens with a truly, truly, which in Greek is uh, amin, amin, which is, is Jesus saying, I'm going to tell you something that's really true. This is true. Listen to me. And he said, you were seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Um, and this is actually the first of four times in this passage that he opens it with this uh, truly, truly. And what he's saying is the crowds are seeking him not to fill their hearts, but to fill their bellies. So they're attracted to this food that he gave them. And so Jesus immediately moves this conversation from the physical to the spiritual. He says, work for the food. Don't work for the food with parishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. And then he references the Son of Man, which again we've seen before as a, a look back to Daniel 7 likely, which points to the deity of Christ. And then uh, he talks about how God the Father has set his seal on this. That seal is a mark of ownership. And again, uh, it's a reference to the fact that Jesus is from above. And we will see him repeatedly making that point throughout this passage that I am from above. You know, God, my Father, has set his seal 
the Son of Man, all, all those references will come together. So basically he's saying stop looking at your immediate need, at your physical hunger, and look at your spiritual needs, at your eternal needs. And this is a point Randy addressed last week when he talked about the feeding of the 5,000, about how there were both Jesus meeting the needs of the people physically in hunger, but that he also saw their deeper needs and met those as well. Um, so that's group one. Group two is, uh, chap- is verses 28 through 59. And again, the nature of this exchange makes it sound like he's having it with, uh, largely with the Jews. And when John, the author of this gospel, uses the word the Jews, he's talking about uh, the Jewish opposition. Uh, this exchange with the Jews is the largest portion of this uh, narrative this morning. It extends in the whole way down to verse uh, 59. So to help us kind of chunk that out, uh, there's basically three questions that the Jews ask Jesus that I've uh, chosen to organize this around that express the Jews' concerns. But before we dive into those three questions, I just wanted to address briefly this idea of uh, signs and the questions that they're, being, that they're asking in general. As the Apostle Paul points out in 1 Corinthians, the Jews uh, require a sign. And as uh, J.C. Ryle states, he says that they, the Jews, uh, live on, waiting for something to convince them and fancying that if they were convinced that they would be different men in religion. The plain truth is that it is not want of heart, but want of evidence and that keeps people back from Christ. The Jews had signs and evidences and proofs of Christ's Messiahship in abundance, but they would not see them. Just so, many, of a, many professed unbelievers today uh, have plenty of evidence around them, but they will neither look at nor examine it. So this would seem to be the case in Ryle's time and in the time of this uh, discourse that Jesus is saying from the answers the Jews give. And I would argue it's also that we have that same time, uh, that same context, if you would, in today. Uh, so on to question one. The Jews' first question is the question of a sign. In 28 through 30, uh, it says, Then they say to him, the, the Jews, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What sign then do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? So in, in verse 28, this whole idea of uh, Jesus linking the food to the work of God and then say, okay, then tell us what these works of God are so we can do them. The Jews come from very much a works uh, righteousness sort of relationship. If you just tell me what it is I need to do to earn God's favor, I will do that. I will will be a better Jew. I will do whatever it takes here. But Jesus said, when they say, what are these works that we're to do, plural, Jesus says, this is the work. He uses the singular word and he said, uh, this is the work of God. Believe. Believe in him whom he has sent. So this is something the Jews weren't expecting to hear at all. It took them by surprise. Uh, it, they were, again, pretty much uh, earning God's favor kind of people. So this radical reordering of things to not these acts that will make God love me more, but just believe in him, uh, it's so different from what they heard that their natural response then is, who are you to be saying these things? They wanted some uh, uh, authentication sign to say that you have the authority to tell us that, uh, that this, this and have it to be true about God. 
So they, they roll into verse 31 there, which is they quote a scripture to make their point. They say, he, uh, Moses, gave them bread from heaven. And they're actually quoting a verse out of Nehemiah. But it's usually not a good idea to uh, quote scripture with Jesus. You know, he might have like the inside track here. But uh, that's their point. Well, Moses gave us this bread from heaven. You know, what's your sign? And my first reaction when I read this was, you got to be kidding me. He has just fed 5,000 people with women and children. And then they didn't all see this, but he walked in. He's done these amazing things. And now you're asking for a further sign? But I, I think uh, we saw last week that the backdrop of this entire chapter is the exodus of the, of, uh, from Egypt of the Israelites. It's complete with uh, manna, with water, with unbelief, and with grumbling, as we'll see in this passage today. In particular, this section of John's discourse is to be understood against this background of Jewish, ex Jewish expectation that when the Messiah came, he would come back as the new Moses. And again, Randy talked about this last week, the whole Deuteronomy 18 picture of Moses, uh, the Moses reboot and uh, and part of this, from their extra-biblical uh, things they had at the time, it's not in the scriptures, but it's actually in a book called Second Baruch, where they, they talk about Moses coming back and, and reinstituting this new Moses, reinstituting this manna, and it would come again and again. So they're saying, basically, yeah, you did this once, but, you know, the new Moses, if you're who you say you are, then, you know, this should be an ongoing thing. So... Uh, Give us what Moses gave us, is basically what they're saying to Jesus. And then he uh, goes in verse 32 and says, he does another, truly, truly, listen to me, what I'm going to tell you now is true. You have missed the whole point completely. It wasn't Moses who gave you the manna, the bread from, from God, but it was God, God himself. And the same God that gave the Israelites this bread from heaven in the wilderness is the God that's giving you the true bread from heaven. And that God is my father. He's making bold statements here. And then in verse 33, he points out that this bread of God is actually a person. Um, and it, this life-giving bread is, is it's for the entire world as well, which reaches back to John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And also, uh, it just has that, has that, defines the scope of the redemption project uh, that's at hand. So uh, they are working through this together. And then verse 34, Jesus says, to sum it up, he says, the Jews missed the point entirely. Just like the woman at the well who asked for the living water so she would ne never have to go draw water again, the Jews want this bread to always satisfy uh, their physical hunger. That's, they're not looking for an authenticating sign. They're uh, looking for bread that would satisfy their physical needs. And again, this is an illustration of a point that, that uh, Jesus made back in chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's these that bear witness to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to see, to come to me that you may have life. So that, that statement that Jesus made of the Jews this physically is what happened because they, they think they know what's going on. They, you know, Moses gave us this bread, shows us the bread. We're students of the scriptures. And Jesus said, no, no, you missed the whole point. It's not Moses that gives you the bread. It's God. And it's actually these scriptures that speak of me. Yet you refuse to believe in me. So this, 
it's just a perfect illustration of that. And then Jesus sort of brings all this uh, uh, to, a, to a clear point um, in verse 35. And he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever, believe, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is uh, uh, the, the Greek, the I am in Greek is ego me. And it's one of the first, it's the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the bread today, then I am the light, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection, the life, and others. So uh, this is part of a theme in the Gospel of John, but it also reaches back to Exodus 3, verse 14, where if you remember the story, God has called Moses to go lead the people out of Egypt, the Israelites, and Moses said, okay, I'm going to go there, but who do I say that, that is sending me? And, and God tells him, he says, tell them, I am is sending you. So Jesus is taking that picture of God in Exodus and reaching back and making that point here uh, with the Jews. And more specifically to this bread of life uh, illustration is that Jesus is saying he, he's the, he nourishes the people spiritually and he satisfies the deep spiritual longings of their souls. In that sense, those who trust in him shall not hunger as he promised them. Their spiritual longing to know God will be satisfied. That was true for them with Jesus as the bread of life, and that's true for us as well. Jesus is the bread that truly satisfies our deep longings. It's also similar to what Jesus told the woman at the well, if you remember back in John 4, where he said, hey, if you drink this water, you'll never be thirsty again. Uh, same idea. Uh, but yet, in verse 36, Jesus says, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And this is a clear declaration of their knowledge of him, but also their clear unbelief in him. And why? Why would they have that unbelief? Well, Jesus uh, clarifies that in the next verse, six, uh, verse 37, where he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So he's saying, well, you, you don't get it because the Father gives me who he gives me and they will come to me and you're not, so what do you think? Uh, but it's just, it's interesting because in this one short verse, we have these two huge thoughts. One is that God is the, uh, God the Father is the one who gives these uh, to Jesus. All who you give will come to me. But then the other half of that is whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So it's... It's the election of God and man's uh, pursuit of God right next to each other, same verse. As one uh, commentator says, he says, these are, there are difficulties as we try to reconcile these two parts of this verse. But whether we succeed in that or not, we dare not abandon the truth of either part. So both parts are, are deeply true and there's tension there. Can you feel the tension? Uh, you should. And uh, it's good that you do because that tension is in the Bible. It's biblical. So verses uh, on to 37 through 39, uh, there's three themes in here that, that recur throughout this passage. Uh, God's drawing and the giving of people to the Son, which we've just discussed. Uh, Jesus doing the will of his Father, uh, which he repeats, and then also this idea of the last days. Uh, the last day is an expression that's found in the New Testament only in the book of John. And it looks forward to the, uh, to the ultimate and final uh, the, the salvation that Jesus brings. Um, this is, was a great comfort to them and is a great comfort for us as well today. 
in all of this, though, as Jesus closes out this question one dialogue, if you would, there's no real, uh, there's no indication that Jews are satisfied at all with his answer. So then on to question two. Uh, don't we know who this man is? Um, and 41 and 42 say this. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Well, the, the, uh, the Jews in verse 41 here likely shows a shift in venue. So the, uh, the, probably from the lakeside where they were maybe uh, walking up towards Capernaum to the actual synagogue itself. But the nature of the opposition and the discussion they have remains the same. Now, the Jews focus in these two verses on Jesus' origin, which is interesting because his actual, the other part of that is his promise of life. So he lays out this promise of life, and they go, well, isn't this Joe's kid? I mean, how, how can this be? Uh, but they don't know what they don't know, which is always, always a dangerous place to be. Um, they do know, they do not know where he's from. They think they do, but they don't. Uh, and Joseph is not his father, and they just, that's, it's just not the way it is. So uh, moving on to 43 through 50, Jesus reiterates some of his main talking points. He says, only those drawn by the Father and heard and learned from the Father can come to me. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Uh, unlike manna, if you eat of this bread, uh, you will not die because they ate of manna and they died. And then I am the living bread that came down from heaven. The bread I give for you for the life of the world is my flesh, which is an allusion to his crucifixion uh, and is also leads to then the next question. Again, there's no resolution, but that statement then causes them to say question number three, how can this man give us his flesh? What is this really about? And the questions, if you look at them, they get uh, progressively more difficult and progressively more personal. So when we get down to 51 and 52, Jesus says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for, for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, Jesus answers this with another, uh, I mean, I mean, another truly, truly, you know, listen to this. I'm about to tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, blood you have no life in you. Uh, so uh, you might think, you know, are we talking about communion here? Is this what this is about? And I would argue that I don't think that's the case. In verse 53, uh, the tense of both the verbs eat and drink connote a, a once-for-all thing, not, the, not what you'd expect if this were a recurring uh, sacramental approach. Also, uh, the communion passages in the other parts of the New Testament don't use the word flesh. They use the word body. So I think we're talking about uh, something different here. And I think the thing that we're, we are talking about is this, uh, the eating and drinking of Christ's flesh and blood appears to be a very graphic way of saying that people must take Christ into their innermost being. Um, and then following that, verse, 50, uh, verse 55, Jesus makes a very emphatic statement that true food and drink uh, 
are for our deep for our deepest needs are to be found in Christ. And the implication there is they are found only in Christ. Uh, and then on to f- uh, 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So I think in these two verses, uh, we get a great picture of what it means to eat Jesus' flesh and to drink his blood. Uh, Jesus equates this in verse 56 with abiding in him. And then he goes on to describe how this life flows from the living father to the sent son to those who are uh, in him. And it sounds just like the picture that we're going to see in a few chapters in John 15, uh, the great abiding factor where Jesus uses another ego in me, another I am, where he says, I am the true vine and you are the branches. So the picture that he's painting here with eating and drinking is like the vine attached, or the, the, uh, the branch attached to the vine, and, you, and there is no life apart from him. Um, and I, I think John also relates uh, abiding to obeying when he writes his first epistle. 1 John 3 says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and God in him. So we have, according to John, feeding on the flesh and drinking of blood, which is closely linked to this idea of abiding, which then is closely linked to this uh, idea of obeying. So those who feed on him should walk as he walked. Um, and then verse 58, and he says, whoever feeds on this bread lives forever. Just again, a promise that what we're talking about here is not uh, food for your stomach, but this is food that endures to eternal life. This is life in him. And again, there's no clear resolution with the Jews. And Jesus now focuses on uh, another group, on his disciples. And this is verses 60 through 66. Uh, opening with uh, John 6:60, which says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Uh, so these disciples, they're not the 12, because he's going to address the 12 separately in a minute here. But these are people who had chosen to follow Jesus for lots of varied reasons. Uh, verse 60 said, this group had heard Jesus' words, but they had difficulty uh, heeding which is the, the sense of that, but who can listen to us? So they, you know, it's like he said these things, but who can listen to them? Because they're really hard to hear. It's really hard to, to heed what he's saying. It, it just reminds me again of uh, Mark Twain's quote. It, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. And I think this is what the disciples are saying. They said, you know, he said a lot of things. A lot of them are really kind of hard for us to get our arms around, but we can live with that. It's the parts that we do understand that are uh, causing this pushback. In verse 63, we get some insight into, into why that's so, into the source of the problem. Uh, the spirit gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. I, I love that. It's a very short, succinct, uh, oh yeah, just a reminder. Life is in the spirit. The flesh really is no help at all. Uh, basically, if you can't see past the shiny, uh, bright objects that fill our lives, Uh, you will be unable to understand Jesus' words. Uh, As one commentator says, people whose horizon is bounded by the things of earth cut themselves off from his teaching and their kind of living counts for nothing. Only as the life-giving spirit informs us may we understand these words, his words, the words of Jesus. So the result of this, uh, how the disciples, where they land in all this is verse 66. Many of his disciples turned away. 
They turned away from the synagogue, the context that they were in at this moment, and they also turned away from following Jesus. And for me, I mean, there's a handful of these verses in the Bible that are just, that are heavy and deeply sad, where these people were with Jesus, they knew Jesus, they saw Jesus, and yet they chose not to follow him. Uh, Some of them, they were a part of that was they were following him for the wrong reasons. Uh, many were looking for relief from the pain of life. Uh, they wanted food for their bellies. They wanted uh, healing for their bodies. Uh, and also, as Randy pointed out last week, many of them were in search of the wrong kind of Messiah. They had this view of someone who would lead them in triumph over Rome finally, and they could restore the kingdom to its, uh, to, to its greatness that they had under David and Solomon. But instead of that kind of Jesus, that kind of Messiah, they found themselves invited by this one to, to believe, to receive Christ, to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and to enter into eternal life, which he proclaimed. And this whole disparity between what they expected and who he was and what he was inviting them to do, it was just too much for them. They rejected his words of life. They went back. And that leaves us finally with, uh, with group number four. Uh, John 6, 67 opens uh, with this. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Uh, and Simon Peter, as often is the case, uh, stepped up and answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So interestingly, this is the first time the 12 are mentioned in the Gospel of John as a select group. And this verse here is John's version of the Matthew 16, 16 response that Peter gave when Jesus said, well, okay, I know what these people say, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So this is, uh, this is John's version of that clear statement by Peter as to who Jesus is. So he's the spokesman for the group. Um, and he's basically saying that regardless of what others are doing, we, the 12, have made our decision. We are in. And the, uh, the tense of the verbs, again, that believe and know, uh, they indicate both an action that has already occurred, but an action that has ongoing effects. So you, uh, one commentator said you could, you could read it like this. We have come to a place of faith. An action has happened. And we continue there. We are continuing. We are abiding in that. We have entered into knowledge. We have come to know who you are, and we retain it. And then just, again, Peter's close there. You are the Holy One of God. Um, but the discourse doesn't end there. There's two more verses, 70 and 71, where Jesus brings this, this, all these people who have left and this sharpness of focus as to understanding who he is but he reminds them that, well, you know, there's one of you here that, that's, uh, that's going to betray us, that's going to head off, and that's Judas. So what do we do with this? You know, John has, has brought us his account of Jesus' ministry in Galilee uh, and, and brings this part of his ministry largely to a close. Uh, from now on, he will concentrate on Judea. So Galilee in the north, he's going to go back down to Judea where Jerusalem is in the south. Uh, in a period of time here, but as we'll see in the very first verse of the next chapter, uh, that that transition uh, will occur. Uh, 
So in the past two weeks, we've seen Jesus preaching, teaching, healing people, feeding thousands, walking on water, uh, amassing a following of thousands, if not tens of thousands of people, many of whom saw him as their version of the Messiah, the one who would remove them from under Rome's boot. His ministry had reached its peak in terms of numbers, but all that changed very quickly when it became clear to his so-called followers what exactly it meant to be his disciple. But how should this shape how we look and live our lives? Before we answer that question, I want to take a quick look again at the purpose of the book of John. Randy touched on this last week. I think it's always good to come back because here we have the author saying, I wrote this book for a reason and this is the reason. Uh, John said it was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That was true for this audience then, and that's equally true for us here today. God wants that. Jesus wants that. He's telling us this story uh, for that explicit purpose. So what does John mean when he says believe? What's that really entail? Well, if you haven't uh, seen and heard believing as a regular drumbeat of John's gospel, then you haven't been listening. It's been in, it's been in every chapter that we've looked at so far, uh, and it, it occurs 98 times alone in this book in John. And that's over 40% of all the times that it occurs in the entire New Testament. And in this passage alone today that we've looked at, it occurs nine times. So this is a big deal uh, for John. And the noun form, so that's the verb form of believe, you know, but the noun form is faith, and that occurs in the book of John none times. None, zero. It doesn't occur at all. So for John, this idea of believing is a, it's an action, it's an active thing, it's a, it's a verb, it's a doing. And the word itself means to believe that God is the God revealed in the word and to put our trust and faith in that God. So we just believe who he is and there's the trust piece as well. This is more than just a simple credence. It's not just believing that he, what he says is true, but it's trusting in him as a person. It implies a total commitment to the one who is trusted. And we've already seen the close connection, John, between abiding and believing in uh, John 5.38 where he says, if you don't have the word abiding in you, uh, you don't believe. And it also we've, we've seen the, uh, that abiding and believing and then Jesus imploring the crowd, the disciples, uh, the crowd, the Jews, the disciples, and the 12 to believe in every one of those passages, to abide in him, to believe that he was the one sent from God. And again, repeatedly in this passage, you see, I'm the one from above. I'm, I, he's trying to make sure they understand that God sent him, that he is not just Joseph's son. He's not Joseph's son at all. He is the son of God who has come to bring them life. Um, and his charge to us is the same as it was to them, to believe. So what does that look like for us today? Well, for those of you who are here this morning and are not yet followers of Jesus, uh, are you like the crowd, um, only looking for God to fill your belly or to fix your problems? Well, he can do those things. We've seen him do it in the text. Uh, but there is so much more. Uh, we need to work for the food that endures to eternal life. So look beyond the immediate circumstances of your life and look to the, the God who can truly uh, give life. Uh, or maybe you're here as a, like, more like the Jews and the disciples with lots of questions about who Jesus is and what he's done and how you should respond. Uh, 
If that's you, then start looking for answers. And a great place to start is just to continue reading this Gospel of John. It is uh, probably one of the best books to start to understand who Jesus is and what he's done and what it means to have faith in him. And if you want help in that journey, we would love to join you in that. Grab, uh, you know, talk to me or Paul or uh, Randy or any, any of us and just we, we would love to, to join you on that journey to discover who God is and how it is that we are to respond to him in faith. Or maybe if you're like the 12, uh, or maybe 11 of the 12 anyway, um, and you have believed and you have come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God, then you need to continue to abide. Uh, abide in him. And we do that, that abiding process, by growing in our understanding of him and by forming deep roots in his word, uh, by meditating on who he is and what, he's done, what he has done. And we've seen that close linkage between Jesus and the word from John 1. You know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the word preexisted, and all, you know, this is the, the culmination. So we want that word, that Jesus, to abide in us and I in him. And we do that, uh, a part of the way we do that is just by abiding in his word, by growing those deep roots. And that's an easy place to start. Uh, you know, you can just memorize a verse and then meditate on that verse and just bask in that and grow those roots uh, deep. So I thought that today I would, I would help you do that on that journey. So today we're going to memorize a verse. Uh, and, and then I would like you to take that verse and then meditate on it during the week. So it's, it's a pretty simple verse. It's actually a verse that we looked at already today, John 6, 48. It says, I am the bread of life. That's it. That's the whole verse. Okay, so... Ready? I am the bread of life. Okay, you've memorized the verse. The address is John 6, 48. So, but take that verse now, and this week, uh, think through what that means. I am, okay. Ego and me, I, that, that's Exodus 3. That's, he does this other times in the book of John. What does he mean there? How, how does that relate? What, when Jesus says that, you know, just think deeply on that. And then I am the bread. What's bread? Bread is a way we get sustenance. We feed our bodies that way, but he's talking about the spirit. How does, how does that feed our spirit? What's that look like? It just, just chew on that. Meditate on his word and have that uh, go deep into who you are and abide in him. Uh, abide. Christ in me and me in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. He is life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the word. We thank you that you became flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you that you gave your life that we might have life in you. And Lord, we thank you that even now you indwell us by your spirit and you make it possible for us to abide in you. Help us to be more and more uh, like you, to grow in our love for you, to grow in our love for your word, to grow in our love for others. Lord, please make us look more and more like you for our good and for your glory. For it's in your most holy and precious name we pray.